Okay, Lance, thank you so much for joining us here today. We're excited to be speaking with you. And do we want to start things off with just having you introduce yourself? Just tell us a little bit about your background and yeah, just a little bit about you. Okay, Sarah, uh, thanks very much. Um, it's a pleasure to be here and, uh, and uh, talk with you at least uh, over Zoom, if not in person. Um, so um, my name's Lance DeCare. I was born in, uh, in uh, as I used to tell people, Bobby Orr and I were born in Perry Sound. Um, but I'm not sure that's true because I don't know where Bobby Orr was really born. But um, uh, which played better in um, when I lived in BC because out here lots of people go so. So lots of people were born in Perry Sound. But uh, anyway, um, my uh, my parents at the time lived in Bala. So I, I guess uh, Perry Sound was the closest uh, uh, hospital at the time. And uh, um, when I was uh, younger, we lived uh, in in this area, I guess, uh, till I was four or five. <clears throat> and we moved down my uh, my dad got a job in Toronto so we moved down into uh, Nobleton um, a little place just outside of, uh, of uh, Nobleton and uh, uh, lived there for um, I guess until I was in grade mm, five something like that <clears throat> I think the reason we moved actually into into Nobleton was when I had to start going to school <clears throat> there was no uh, this is the days before kindergarten it wasn't a thing yet so just started grade one and uh started there so my my dad when I was young was he was an electrician and so we tended to move around a lot after um, after grade five we moved uh, here moved there uh, moved lots of different places um, ended up in Sarnia um, before we left for BC so I was uh, 14 when we uh, when we left and went to BC but up until that time I, I, I look back at my childhood and think well I had a pretty much a, a, a a really sort of golden summer vacation time every year. I had uh, two sets of grandparents. My uh, mom's parents had a farm just outside of Markham. And uh, of course, my grandmother, my father's parents were in Bala. So you literally the day after school ended, I would uh, <clears throat> be trundled off and I would go to the farm and I would spend uh, the month of July working on the, or working on the farm, playing on the farm. Um, learning how to drive a tractor when I was 10 and stuff like that, that uh, when you're 10 is pretty cool. Um, do all that. And then in August, I would uh, head up to Muskoka and uh, I had lots of cousins and whatnot that were uh, just slightly older than I am. So if I couldn't think of any way to get in trouble, they could certainly help out and uh, had a great time just uh, running around uh, all summer. So it's uh, when I look back on it, like, it's no, no wonder I didn't like going to school. But <laughs> summers were much too much fun. Um, anyway, um, my you know sort of history in in uh, the Skoka goes back, I guess, to those days, and uh, I still have lots of um, <clears throat> well, not so much aunts and uncles anymore, but uh, lots of cousins and uh, lots of relatives in in this area, and uh, as, as well as some of them, more of them down in uh, in Toronto, but. Uh, Lots of uh, lots of fond childhood memories of uh, of Muskoka, and uh, up until right up until the time we left and went to BC, and then that uh, and it became more of a episodic thing where every three or four years it'd come back for a week or something like that, which is a, a whole different uh, different kind of view of the world. 
So Lance, the, the, um, so when you moved out to BC, this is still, you were still school age, I presume something like that. Um, so how was that transition? How was living in BC versus this part of the world? Is it, you know, changed the names and it's the same, or it was a very different kind of environment just to contrast, uh, particularly in those days, um, how, how was that transition for you? It was, um, you know, everything was a different world, I guess, but it certainly was, it was different in Vancouver. I left when I was 14, I was in grade eight. I think that's right, yeah, grade eight, which in Ontario is the last year of public school. In BC, it's the first year of high school. So I went from a school that had, I don't know, 300, 400 kids, maybe something like that, to a high school with 2,400 kids in it. <laughs> it was um, uh, in, you know, sort of my first day at, uh, at uh, school. I mean, you had lockers, you had uh, um, everything in the high schools. You know, you, you changed classrooms and all this stuff. All this stuff was brand new. And uh, I know my first class was a French class because in BC you had to take French. I had been... Uh, one of the schools I was at, I think in grade three, they had an experimental French class thing. So I knew a few words of French from that, but uh, my first class, my first day in high school was a French test. I didn't do well. <laughs> um, and, you know, just being in that kind of environment, and it was a, an urban school, so it was a, sort of downtown Vancouver, and uh, it was just a, a totally, totally different thing. And, and uh, you know, they had sports teams and football teams and all kinds of stuff that uh, uh, didn't exist in, in uh, public schools. So, so that part of it was a real eye-opener. It, um, it was different. We, we first moved sort of to a, a temporary place in actually not too far from Stanley Park, which is just a, a gorgeous, gorgeous place to, to, uh, to live. And uh, it was two blocks from the beach and, uh, uh, you know, three or four blocks from the park. And uh, so I spent a lot of time then, you know, wandering around uh, Stanley Park and uh, and around the beaches and, and just uh, explored a lot. It was it was a whole different world than being in Sarnia. And uh, I'm sure Sarnia is better now than it was back in the, um, in the 60s, this would have been. But in the 60s, it was, um, uh, it didn't have a lot of going for it from, um, uh, being a picturesque place by the by the river or anything it was um it was pretty dirty <laughs> and, uh, uh, lots of uh, smokestacks and, and that kind of stuff so um it was it was different and it was a different environment too it's it's and it's not the same now when i go back to vancouver it's it's kind of almost indistinguishable from from toronto other than the the, the view and the distance uh but back then um it was a much more laid back place than anywhere else I think I'd ever lived or at least noticed. Uh, in Vancouver, you could sort of be walking along the sidewalk in the middle of a block and then turn and start to cross the street and four lanes of traffic would stop and let you walk across the street. That was that was just what people did. It was um, <clears throat> a really common, common thing. So there was... Um, it, it, now you would get run over, I'm pretty sure. But uh, but back then it was uh, uh, just a different atmosphere, I think. Um, so I don't know if that answers the question, but it was certainly a different um, uh, a different kind of environment, and, and certainly 
me as a 14 year old, uh, you know, the first six months of being 14 were, were very much different than the last six months and, uh, and carried on from there. Yeah. Amazing. Well, it's great to hear sort of that background. And then, you know, following school, do you want to tell us a little bit about then transitioning into your first career and sort of what this was like? Yeah, I guess the, you know, getting into the, um, the music thing, I, I went to, um, yeah, after we left downtown Vancouver, we moved outside of Vancouver. And uh, um, so I went to another very large high school. I guess BC at the time was just building huge, huge high schools. It was another, I think this one had 2,800 kids. Um, it was a huge, sprawling, uh, sprawling place. But it was, it was great. And um, they had a high school band. And my father had played drums in his younger days. So I had uh, kind of taught myself how to do that. So I, um, I tried out for the high school band and then they, they, saw fit to take me on, even though it was in grade 10 by then, I guess. So um, normally you would start likely in grade eight. And uh, so there I, I learned how to read music and then sort of brought a little more structure to, uh, to that. And I started to play with some, some bands with other mus well, musicians, other kids really, um, <clears throat> and played for, you know, high school sock hops and that kind of that kind of stuff. When that that was still a thing back then. We're still in the '60s, so it's a, a different world again from from now. Um, and sort of out of that, I was um, I had been mostly a not not a terribly good student at uh, at school, but the the big school sort of suited me uh, because you had a lot of electives and whatnot, especially in the later years. So. Um, I could uh, sort of pick and choose things that were more interesting and some stuff I um, I had, I guess growing up, I was a bit of a nerd. So I, like I took electronics in high school and I, like I started in grade, in grade 10 or something. And they had, uh, you could take uh, electronics grade for grade 11 and grade 12. And uh, after two months, I think I wrote the exam for the grade 12 one and passed that. So then I had sort of a whole block of time I could do whatever I wanted to. And, and uh, that that kind of stuff um, uh, made it easier for me anyway to uh, to go through that whole experience in high school. But um, coming out in graduation and then now what to do was sort of the, uh, this, I guess most people coming out of high school face the same sort of thing. So um at the time, I thought, well, music seems like a seems like a lot more fun than working. Um, I had been working in uh, uh, in construction mostly uh, through summer, like summer jobs and that kind of thing back and back when that was a thing that uh, students did all the time. Mm -hmm. So you know, the, I was sort of looking at that, and I thought, well, that doesn't really seem all that appealing. It was pretty boring stuff, and. Uh, so I thought, well, I'll apply to uh, to music school, and I um, I got accepted by Douglas College as a as a music major. So off I went. Um, in retrospect, sort of woefully unprepared, but uh, but uh, off I went anyway. So um, and that was really the the thing that uh, at that time that's what I thought I wanted to do, or at least it was. If nothing else, was uh, the the lesser of all of the other evils. So, Lance, the uh, so for some entrepreneurs, they always wanted to have their own business and had a lemon stand from you know the age of ten or whatever. You, uh, and then there's others who haven't got a clue and just um, you know 
oh gosh, school's finished. Now what do I do? Were you, where were you in that sort of spectrum of thinking? Were you, uh, did you have some aspirations and you threw them out the window? Did you, did you, um, or did a lot of the entrepreneurial stuff only come very much later in life? Uh, do you have family members that had their own business in those days or not? Like set the scene for us in terms of at what point in your career does the, the whole run, run my own business kind of thing trigger? Was that it as early as the school days or that came much later? Because, you know, uh, it'd be interesting to hear your perspective. Well, I guess, uh, Stuart, it was, um, for me, there was always the, um, uh, I was always had a job. I always found a job. I usually found it by myself. It wasn't uh, something that uh, occasionally, you know, somebody would, uh, or I'd meet somebody through my father or something like that. But uh, I would always um, find something. And that was kind of the, the goal at that time, because there was nobody in my family that uh, um, was an entrepreneur other than um, in the construction. My, my father being an electrician, he did have his own electrical company, but that was a pretty common kind of a thing. You, um, It wasn't quite the same as uh, as striking out on your own in, in, in a different kind of thing. Was it more creating your own job kind of thing? And not to, not to cast aspersions on that because it still, uh, uh, still takes a lot of nerve to do that sort of thing. So, um, but it's not uh, heading out into a whole new uh, um, ball game or starting something that doesn't exist or whatever. So, so there was really not, um, not this um, culture of, of, entrepreneurship so um, it was more sort of job focused I guess uh, when I was young so um, there were very few times when I wouldn't have a job or I would find something to do um, I was pretty much on my own as far as making or getting any money if I wanted any money there was one sure way to do it and that was just go get a job <laughs> everything else didn't usually didn't pan out very well so um uh, so there wasn't, yeah, it wasn't like um, I was in a culture where this was expected or, or even um, encouraged. It was just uh, what you did is you went out and got a job. Yeah. So, uh, so that's what I did. Um, as far as, you know, wanting to do something on my own, I don't think it was uh, maybe something I wanted to do, but I really had no idea how you would go about and do that. And, uh, and it was just uh, more focused on what kind of a job could you get and, uh, and not, and not ending up in a job that was quote unquote, really boring. That was my, because I had quite a few of those jobs. And so then going into sort of your entrepreneurial journey, can you tell <clears throat> us a little bit about your first business, um, you know, when you started it, sort of what it was and sort of how that came about? So when I was, um, when I left Pitney Bowes after you know, almost 20 years, I guess, of, of working there, and that's where the it started, I guess. I'd done, I'd done fairly well at Pitney Bowes and that was, um, um, you know, they're a business equipment uh, manufacturing company. I had many, many different uh, uh, jobs with them. Uh, and that's when I started thinking about, well, you know, what if I put all this time and effort and, you know, you start putting in 12-hour days and stuff like that. There's a, there's a real joke in the, uh, uh, 
in large corporations that the, the higher you go, the more time off they give you and the less time off you can take. So, <laughs> um, so you know, looking at, uh, at the work and, and how things had gone fairly well there, and I started to think, well, what if I, what if I just did this by myself? And, and uh, so sort of the, um, uh, the opportunity came up and, and I left Pitney Bowes and I thought, well, I could get another, sort of get another job, which would be the, the sort of safe, safe route to go. And uh, there were um, opportunities in that, uh, in that realm. But uh, I thought, well, I'll give myself a year and see what, um, what I can do. And at the time, I really had only a kind of a loose idea of what it is I would do for a year uh, to make money. But um, I, I had done some, some pretty heavy duty work in, in sort of computerization and uh, putting in computer systems. Um, so, and the, those PC things were starting to stick around and look like they might, uh, there was, you could envision the future where every business may actually own a computer one day. And uh, so started out by doing networking and, um, uh, computer networking and uh, and selling computers and um, looking after people's uh, getting their printer to print and all that kind of stuff, and um, that went pretty well for for a while. But I kept running into people complaining about uh, about software problems and software problems. So um, I started doing some database stuff at the same time, and um, it sort of grew into this. Um, what ultimately ended up being a, a pure software company um, over time. So let's join the dots for us. So you're in music school, um, at school uh, at school before you've done some electronics. Um, how does the electronics at school, music college you're at, Pitney Bowes, uh, in that journey, where, how, how, how did that uh, how did those different pathways, because Pitney Bowes, I don't think is a music company, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, how did you sort of zigzag your way to, you know, the point of leaving Pitney Bowes and and, um, and setting up your business and sort of give us a context of, you know, little breadcrumbs along the way that triggered your zigzag that eventually led to this that uh, sort of fill in some background for us. Well, the um, the music courses I took at, uh, at Douglas College were, ultimately designed to, to crank out music teachers. That was the sort of the goal of that stream in the, in the music business. So, which was interesting enough and you know, learn to play all sorts of different instruments and stuff like that. But um, I really thought that uh, playing in a band was way more fun than learning about music. So, um, and I was at that time then starting to play with bands and play on weekends and uh, that kind of thing. and. Again, back in, you know, this is the early 70s, live music is still a real thing. Like virtually every bar would have a live band, um, if not every night of the week, certainly on the weekends. So there was a lot of work. It's a, much different than it is now, much different. Um, so I was doing that and um, I thought, well, I'll just, um, you know, didn't want to go back to school. And I made that decision kind of late in the summer of the, you know, the first uh, summer break after first year and I thought, well, no, I'm not going to go back. So I, um, I uh, had been working in a pulp mill through the summer at uh, Cornell, BC, and uh, came back into Vancouver and um, 
took back up and, and just started uh, playing music. Occasionally, I would um, drive taxi. So that was sort of my, um, uh, you could fill in days that way. And, and the taxi business back then, everything was done in cash, of course. There was no credit cards or anything like that. So um, in the way it worked uh, back then, you could I just call up the office and uh, see if they had a shift available. And almost invariably, they, they would. <clears throat> and you could work for 12 hours at a time if you wanted to do 12-hour shifts. And uh, um, and then you got paid that day or you you collected all the money and you gave essentially half of it to the taxi company and you kept the other half. So um, it was a good sort of cash-based job and then playing in the in weekends, you would get paid on the weekends. And uh, and that's sort of how I, I kept my days going for, uh, for a while. Uh, did that for... A year and a half, I guess, something like that. And uh, the music part was going pretty well. And, uh, you know, playing four or five nights a week, and which was more than enough to uh, uh, to keep, certainly to keep body and soul together and uh, saved up some money. And that's when I um, I, I stopped doing that. And uh, my girlfriend at the time and I headed off to Europe for six months and uh, went, uh, went to Barcelona, bought a car and drove from there down through Italy and across to Yugoslavia and Greece and then up to back up through ended up uh, a couple hundred miles north of the Arctic Circle in Norway and then came back down and six months later came back and that was um I think that was one of the building things so I would have been 19 or 20 I guess at the time um and it's the first time in my life I'd really been in a in an environment where I uh, there was no safety net or anything around you, you know. The um, uh, first night we landed in Spain and uh, didn't speak any Spanish. <laughs> and, uh, had no idea, you know, what was going on and you're jet lagged and everything else. And so it, uh, I think it, uh, it, it helped, I think, for me to build some character to know that you could, you know, not that uh, surviving in Europe is, uh, is uh, not quite the same as going uh, lots of other places in the world. But um, it did uh, expose me to um, lots of different cultures and meeting met lots of people that would be sort of similar to where I was, but they didn't have any of the similar or same kinds of opportunities and whatnot. And it really uh, sort of gives you pause to think about what uh, what it is you do have as opposed to uh, what you just assume, you know. So um, a lot of my assumptions were changed by the time I came back, uh, just on on how things worked and uh, especially going into um, Yugoslavia was a real uh, eye-opener at the time because it uh, it was the first place I'd been to where it wasn't really, um, there wasn't much of a middle class there at all. And I didn't see much of the upper class. It was, uh, there were still lots of donkey carts and that kind of stuff um, um, running around. So. Yeah, I guess you know part of it was when I when we first arrived in um, in Spain, Franco was still running Spain at the time, so it was a dictatorship. And um, I remember getting off the plane, and uh, they had these buses that rose up to meet the plane. You know, when you got walked off, you didn't walk down a hallway or anything into the building. You walked into this bus, and they lowered the bus down, and there were two guys in uniform with submachine guns in the bus. And they were just, you know, standing there, not doing anything. But uh, 
uh, I had never seen a guy like that before in my life. Uh, so that was sort of one, hmm, hmm, you know, gives you a sort of pause. Um, and there were, you know, people, there was more political discourse, I guess, at the time in Spain. People, A lot of people didn't really like Franco and were willing to talk about it, but you had to be very careful about how you talked about it. So, you know, it was a, a time of a more counterculture, I guess, back then. Um, and Yugoslavia was the other place that was um, just um, poor. Again, Tito was running Yugoslavia, another um, you know, dictator from the, the Second World War. And um, it was a very much a socialist country, although you, as a Canadian, you could get in without a visa, or at least you could apply for a visa as you got to the country or something. But it, uh, it was relatively easy to get in as opposed to going to, say, Poland or someplace like that, where you had to apply months in advance. Um, so, and just driving through, you know, it came to Dubrovnik uh, in a, on a ferry from Italy, and Dubrovnik is just this is a jewel on the Adriatic. It's just a gorgeous place uh, built in the 16th century or something like that, uh, a walled city, and uh, <clears throat> all the streets are very narrow, and most of them have steps on them, so there's no cars in the city at all, and you can walk around, and it was quite... Uh, picturesque and whatnot, but then heading out into the countryside and you're sort of immediately into, um, you know, as I said, people with, um, with uh, donkey carts and um, uh, horse-drawn plows in the fields, that kind of stuff. It was like stepping back in time in many ways, you know, and you'd look at, uh, um, and you meet people there, again, sort of my age, and uh, you think, boy, these people have a whole they live in a totally different world and they have totally different uh, opportunities and uh, and you know their future is much different than than what I envisioned mine being and uh, I think it was probably true. The other thing that struck me is that what a friendly place it was even though that they had like three different languages and um, and uh, two different uh, alphabets <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> I guess um, uh, the future didn't uh, wasn't quite as nice to them as it uh, as I thought it was when I first came. So at the time there was like a lot of unrest with Quebec and Quebec's going to secede and whatnot. And I thought, well, here these Yugoslavians, they got to figure it out. But little did I know. Anyway, that wasn't going to end well. But uh, uh, but uh, that was interesting. And then um, you know, going down into Greece was another place that was um, better. I know when you first. You leave Yugoslavia and you drive into Greece and you go through the border, they've got like a 10-lane highway that runs in and then it becomes a nine-lane highway a kilometer or so later and then an eight and then six and then two. <laughs> but it sure looks impressive when you get to the border. Um, at, the, at least it did at the time. Uh, again, it's a, you know, a, a, different, a, a whole different culture and you, you're starting to get into, into uh, uh, much, much different ways of living that, you know, you could make an argument that um, Germans really didn't live a whole lot different than French people, and they weren't all that different than people in Toronto. But uh, by the time you got to uh, Yugoslavia and Greece, you were into a, into a different world and uh, and just different, different things were important to people. And uh, so all of that sort of gave me a different view on, on what could be, I guess, and, uh, and uh, more appreciation maybe of uh, a lot of the things that were in Canada at the time.
Yeah, it's definitely interesting seeing sort of those different perspectives. And then can you take us a little bit about, you know, from there to, you know, starting your own business? I'm sure there's a lot of in-betweens, but, you know, a little bit about that path. Yeah, well, when I came back from uh, from Europe, I went back into, um, I came back essentially broke. So I, uh, I went back into driving taxi and uh, and picked up with the music business again. And uh, the music business came back pretty quick. Um and uh, of course, taxi was just uh, a fill-in. But as I uh, went on with that, I thought, well, I should really find something better to do during the day than just driving taxi, because that's sort of a, well, it's an interesting job in some ways. It's interesting for all the wrong reasons. Um, so that's why I thought, well, I'll, I'll look and see if I can find a, sort of a real job. And uh, there was I answered an ad in the, in the newspaper, because that's what people used to do. And... Uh, um, Applied. They were looking for uh, service technicians, I guess, at, uh, at their Pitney Bowes office in Vancouver. So I went and applied, and I uh, I got an interview, and I went in with a, an interview, and then um, I got another interview, and then and a whole bunch of tests and stuff like that. And this whole process took about six weeks, I guess. So I thought, well, these guys are just never going <laughs> to. I would call them up every once in a while, and uh, the service manager said, well, no, we're still waiting for decision from Toronto, you know, and they're, so anyway, so I, I kind of written it off eventually, but uh, then I got a call and said, well, no, come on in. And it was one of those funny things. They, you know, started showing me around and, and, and I'd been there like four or five times and uh, showed around. And then I said, well, you know, are they, have they made a decision? Oh, didn't we tell you? No, no, you got the job. <laughs> I said, oh, oh, you left that part out. But um so anyway, I I got the job there, and I was uh, it was it was a and it was a really really good job in many ways. It, it suited me. It was um, uh, I started. You had to used to have to read. Uh, Pitney Bowes, uh, their main business was in in the mailing equipment, uh, and they got their start with uh, manufacturing postage meters. <clears throat> so back in the day, when everything moved by by mail. The mail was a really big deal, and uh, everything, of course, uh, had to have a stamp on it, and licking stamps was a, uh, impossible when you're at the Royal Bank or somebody like that. So uh, these, uh, like it's Alfred Pitney, and I can't remember the Bose guy's name, um, they came up with this postage meter idea, and uh, so it was, uh, it would actually print the postage on the, on the stamp. So the way it worked is you would physically take this piece of equipment, this postage meter, you as the, uh, as the person who owned it or was renting it, you would take it to the post office and they would put uh, an amount of money in, a couple hundred to $300, something like that. Then every time you ran off a six cent stamp or whatever it was at the time, um, it would just deduct that from the amount of money that you had left in the meter. And then when it hit zero, it wouldn't print any more stamps. And you have to take it back to the post office and put more money into it. Post offices used to have separate wickets that would just take people with postage meters. Um, and they would show up with a check and a, and a postage meter. So uh, one of the regulations then was that as the manufacturer, you had to verify the accuracy of the meters twice a year. So the first job you had, and then sort of the low-level job there, was running around reading postage meters. You would go in and... Uh, you know, the customer would have to have a book as well as the meter, and the meter had two registers on it, one how much money you had left, and how much, the second one was how much money had ever gone through it. And you had to add those two up, and it had to agree with what the post office had written in this book. <laughs> it was a 
horrendous system, but um, but it it worked, I guess. So then transferred through to um, different jobs, and then you started fixing because these things would most of you would go on machines that would put the envelopes through and seal the envelopes and automated way. So you'd be trained on all this different stuff. And uh, so ended up with a territory and you would go around and you sort of your own boss, as it were, you had to, if there were uh, breakdowns or whatever, people call in, then you would call into the office as uh, it was years before I, a couple of years, I guess, before I got one of the first pagers <laughs> that was ever out. So you would um, either go to a pay phone or you would use the customer's uh, phone and call in, see if there's any uh, emergencies you had to deal with. Otherwise you would go around, you would do servicing and maintenance on, on equipment and uh, end of the day you'd go home. And it was, uh, it was a really uh, neat, interesting kind of job and there was enough interaction with people and uh, lots of technical challenges and stuff like that. So I did that for a while and then um, got uh, the patents that Xerox had on plain paper copiers ran out and uh, everybody and their brother jumped into the plain paper copier business because it was hugely uh, profitable, certainly for Xerox at the time. Um, and Finney Bowes brought out uh, a copier. It sold in it's 1976 or seven, something like that. It sold for $8,000, um, which was less than half the price of a new house but not a whole lot less. Um, and it required 220 volts to run and it was noisy and it took up, uh, it was like two fridges stacked on, on their sides, sort of laying down, it was, it was a big, big machine. Um, and it made 30 copies a minute. <laughs> it was sort of laughable today, but uh, that was sort of cutting edge stuff at the time. So they set up a whole new vision to run that stuff and I got, uh, 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 tag to to go and start with this new uh, new division. So that started my uh, running into photocopiers. That's where I spent the rest of the time in the service department. I guess uh, at Benny Bowes was in uh, in photocopiers. It became kind of my thing, and uh, it was a, a lot of fun at the time because it was uh, a brand new enterprise. And, and maybe this is a little bit of um, I get to see just how this stuff starts because it, it was almost like starting a new company in many ways. It was um, it's separate service guys, separate sales guys, um, separate manufacturing lines that were running to build this stuff. Um, uh, and it was, you know, let's say these machines were um, um, service intensive. For every six machines were sold, they would hire a new service person. <laughs> um, I don't know what they cost to uh, uh, service uh, every month would be two or three or four hundred dollars, something like that. And again, you know, uh, I don't know how much money I was making at the time, but it was probably a thousand dollars a month or something. It was, uh, you know, uh, you could do a lot with the kind of money that they were uh, charging for these things. But um, they sold really well, and uh, and uh, and that grew. And it grew very quickly. And uh, so I ended up being the supervisor of, of the, the service area there. I still had a, they had the one service manager, but I was the supervisor of all the copier guys. And, and that was the uh, first time I'd had, you know, any sort of supervisory thing. And I, I was uh, 
I think the youngest supervisor guy that they had <laughs> and, uh, dealing with people who had been with the company for, you know, some of them 20, 25 years was a different kind of um, a thing, but, um, but it, it worked out pretty well. It, uh, you know, you learn, I guess, learn to deal with people and deal with um, issues and problems around staff, not just uh, dealing with customers issues. Uh, customer issues are easy. Um, staff is hard. But, uh, uh, it's uh, it it was a, a, a real learning experience, and uh, and it uh, uh, really uh, I think it, that part of it really helped me uh, going forward. And there were um, all they paid commissions on stuff. There was you know so you you could have a um, a direct impact on your uh, sort of your paycheck by doing different things, selling different things, and uh, uh, I like that aspect of it as well. So. Uh, that went on. The music thing was still going. Actually, at that time, the music thing was going really well. I was working virtually all the time. Um, you know, and I guess when you're, I think about it now and think, oh God, how did I do it? But uh, there were many times when I would, uh, I would uh, play at night, and then studio time was really expensive back then. Now, you know, you can a studio might cost hundred thousand dollars in nineteen seventy six, which is like a huge amount of money. So they would run 24 hours a day. And, uh, you know, you could replace all that hardware now with a laptop. But, but uh, uh, so there'd be work to do. Sometimes you get calls and say, you know, can you come in at 2, two this morning? <laughs> and, uh, usually because somebody else couldn't show up or didn't show up or whatever. So there would be times when I would, uh, you know, go to work and then I would, um, you know, maybe have an hour of sleep or something like that afterwards. And then we would go and play from eight till one and then go to the studio and then go home and have a shower and put on a clean shirt and go to work. <laughs> Do it again the next day, you know. Um, certainly a game for young people, not for me now, but uh, I think it would kill me. Um, but there were, you know, there, were, there was times when that's what I would be doing or you'd be driving all over, you know, rushing back from someplace two hours away to, to get back in time to go to work. <laughs> got to be a lot. So I got to the point where um, I'd been playing with this one group of guys for a couple of years, and I hadn't had really a day off in two years. Like, it had just been straight through. I'd had time off of Pitney Bowes, but, uh, but I'd still be playing virtually, virtually every night with these guys. And um, that all broke up, as these things often do. And um, I'd had this job offer sort of a standing job offer from a guy that I knew that had bought a hotel in, uh, in Rogers Pass, BC. And um, I just got to the point, and it wasn't really, I can't say that I sat down and did a list of pros and cons or anything like that. I just thought, screw it, I'm going to Rogers Pass. <laughs> so I things are going so well, I quit working with Pitney Bowes. And uh, uh, that's, I guess, the last time I worked really in the music industry in any sort of serious um, serious way. And I just, um, I didn't quit that as much as I just didn't go back to it. And uh, off I went to Rogers Pass and uh, worked there for a year. Uh, I was uh, the assistant manager at the hotel. It was, uh, Rogers Pass is the highest point in the Transcanda Highway. It, uh, it snows a bit there. Um, it's in the middle of a park. The, uh, the, it's, uh, the park is 90 miles long, whatever that is in kilometers, but... Uh, um, and it was too long and it's all through um, avalanche territory. So 
they wanted to build, they wanted somebody to build a garage at the summit, which is the only place that's avalanche free in that sort of uh, near anywhere near the summit. So uh, nobody would build a gas station, but somebody agreed if they let them build the hotel, they would build a gas station. So uh, there was this hotel in the middle of nowhere, um, in the middle of a park, uh, and it was just drop dead gorgeous scenery. You just like anything you can imagine that just, you know, every direction you looked, there were just nothing but mountains and uh, uh, lots of uh, wildlife. <clears throat> you would see through the summer, you would see bears three or four times a day and grizzlies maybe every second or third day. <clears throat> so you always had to get into a real habit of, um, you didn't walk out any door, especially at night, without banging the door first and um, giving the bears a chance to run away. Um, but that was a, a place that existed for um, summer tourists. And uh, they, you know, there was a staff of about 80, 85 in the summertime and a staff of eight during the winter. <clears throat> so it was just like night and day, uh, you'd throw a switch and... Uh, uh, everything would go away. So there would be mostly students that would come there and work. Uh, and of course, you had to live there too. There was no, so they had a whole floor of the hotel that was just for staff. And the people were crammed in four people to a room or whatever. And uh, so the staff would live there. And then, uh, so you lived there, you worked there. There was nowhere else to go, you know, other than 45 minute ride one direction or the other into town. So that's a whole different. Um, um, dynamic that sets up, especially with lots of students, a lot of them are being away from home for the first time. So lots of um, good behavior, bad behavior and everything else. Uh, the place, it, the business itself was around selling gas. Of course, they sold a lot of gas and uh, they did a lot of tour buses would come through and it was a stop for tour buses and they would have lunch. So they had a, um, a smorgasbord for lunch. And the reason they had a smorgasbord for lunch was because that way they could put through more people. And uh, so they would start cooking for the, the lunchtime smorgasbord at two in the morning. Um, and they would cook um, like seven or eight turkeys, 30 whole salmon, um, this, kind of volumes. It was just a huge, huge volume. And at the time, I think they were charging around $15. Now for $15, you could have take two people to the keg probably at the time. But people, I guess hey, they were kind of trapped, but uh, it was a really, really nice bread. You walk in there with the whole salmon laid out and, and you know, these big roast beef and there'd be a guy there in a white hat slicing it off for you and whatnot. But People would line up actually outside of the hotel and the line would make its way through the, uh, through the gift shop and into the, uh, into the dining room. The dining room was just a big A-frame with floor to ceiling windows and all you could see was mountains outside. And you would actually just be handed your plate while you're still in line. And then you go through the food and then you would find the table. <laughs> <laughs> people would come and go. So people would uh, uh, leave pretty quickly because there's always people in line. And so typically every day they would do about 3,500 people for, uh, for uh, lunch. And that was what paid for the entire operation. 
everything else was gravy. It was just that that whole lunch thing. So that's again where I I dealing again with staff, you know, for the for the second go around, I guess, with dealing with staff, but this is a whole different kind of staff. There were certainly some professional people there, and but but then you had this huge body of students. And um that's a whole different thing to um a whole different beast, I think as it were to uh to try to supervise and and because you know you can't just tell them what to do and then go away. <laughs> you gotta watch and and follow up and uh it it was uh it was interesting, but it was um, uh, uh, a really, uh, a really different, uh, different than working in a where you're working with more or less professional people or people who have um, a lot of stake in the job. Because the students don't have any stake in the job, really. I mean, if they they don't like what you're telling them, they'll just go away, you know, and, and they don't really care. So, um, at least many of them did, and, and there are many, many really, really good good people too but uh it was just a a, a whole different uh environment so it, it it sort of helps to uh round all of that out um working there in the winter time of course is a whole different thing with uh without a whole lot of staff so you get to do lots of different jobs i, I drove a tow truck and uh do different uh different things like that the year i was there was not a record year for snow they only had 72 feet of snow that year um, I left in uh, around this time of year, I guess, is when I when I left there. I stayed I stayed there for essentially a year, and uh, I had to find my car, which was parked. I knew more or less where it was parked, and uh, I had to use these big long poles that they used to check to see how much gas was in the gas tanks. It'd be like twenty foot long poles, standing on top of the snow, going down, pushing it down, till we get sort of find the edge of the car and then uh, get a front end loader to to uh, get close enough until we could see the bumper and then pull the car out and left this little snow cave in. It was um, totally buried under um, to find out, probably 15 feet of standing snow. But uh, snow was there. Uh, they, every year they have, uh, there's a, an avalanche crew and uh, a Department of Transport crew that's across the street from the hotel and they uh, Every year at Halloween, they have a, a football game, and it's always in the snow. The snow is covered, and it's uh, and the last the snow melts about the middle of July. <laughs> and if it wasn't for um, the avalanche crew, it would be uh, probably a glacier up there. But uh, that's where the the army comes up with their World War II howitzers, and they shoot down the avalanches. That's a whole other story, but uh, that's a that's more a funny story for another day. Or how you or how you can get trapped for two weeks in a hotel because the army made a mistake. Uh, so Lance, on the music side, um, what kind of music did you like to play? What kind of bands? What did you learn uh, in you know the music business that uh, you know um, paint a picture of what that's like for somebody that's never played in a band or you know done that? And I presume that was mostly downtown Vancouver kind of days before you went to the hotel. And you pretty much gave that up when you got to the hotel. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. It was, um, you know, as far as types of music, I like to play rock and roll music, but I would play virtually anything. <laughs> like, uh, and I and I did play virtually everything. There, there's a lot of country music at the time. I didn't really like country music, but I could play country music. Um, 
and uh, you know there were a lot of uh, paying jobs that uh, you, you would take. So um, you know after a while your name kind of gets out there. So typically I would be playing with the same group of guys all the time, and you would you would find um, uh, somebody would organize uh, you know jobs, or you get a, a gig here, a gig there, and uh, and line stuff up and line up a calendar. You'd be lined up for three or four months in advance, and you would just uh, so you'd know more or less what you were doing. And that would sort of be the baseline. And then you would um, get calls from people. <clears throat> somebody couldn't show up or somebody's got to do something. And it'd be lots of those kinds of things you'd fill in, fill in here or there. And those would be um, for whatever kind of music those guys were playing. That's what you would, you would play. Um, I had a bit of an advantage. I guess back then it wasn't all that common to be able to read music, at least as a, as a drummer. That was pretty rare. So that helped somewhat um, get get different jobs. I um, but I played with um, uh, the New Westminster Symphony Orchestra. <laughs> um, you know, uh, not not very often, but uh, a couple three times. And uh, so, sort of anything at all. And again, because there was such a lot of live music going on, there weren't. Um, there weren't a lot of big amplifiers out then that could fill a room with um, with taped music. And there was an expectation with people that tape music was just like a jukebox. And that was sort of what they played when the band was taking a break, you know? Um, so um, people expected to see live music. So bars would book live music. And there was uh, an awful lot of, there was a lot of work that, uh, you know, you could, uh, you could find. So, do a lot of weddings um and weddings of course you play all kinds of stupid music but um you know i know how to play the chicken dance and all that other stuff that um <clears throat> people expect you to be able to do um uh, but it was um it was i guess relative relatively easy you know, to do some hustling but relatively easy to line things up and you would you would play the same places over and over and over again too like you would be here once a month you would be there once a month and um those kind of things they would just book in you know you'd book in their calendar they'd book you into yours and uh and say okay we'll we'll come here every third week you know and uh, you would fill fill a calendar up that way and then you'd, you'd get a pretty good handle on uh, on what you were going to be doing so it was um a more of a job i guess the the good thing is you could work a lot the bad thing is that um it was easy to get trapped in the music business like that. It was easy to get trapped just doing that and not, not sort of rising up. You know, you weren't, uh, you know, we recorded some stuff, nothing, nothing ever went anywhere, but uh, um, that was really the way out of the, the bar rut as it were. Uh, and it was really a, a grind and the people that just did that or people would go on tours and, you know, you would do tours where you'd play five nights a week and you go, you know, you'd play in one place in Calgary and then Edmonton and then, you know, and on and on and on. You could do that for four months. Well, and you're living out of a suitcase and uh, that's, it's, it's a grind, you know? So um, I was, I, you know, I, I kind of realized that, uh, well, this isn't really going anywhere. Most of the guys I was playing with, they, they had other jobs as well. So this was just a, uh, uh, more a hobby that you could make money at than really diving into the music as a career. So that's where one of the reasons I think it was uh, 
easier to just sort of walk away, as it were, and uh, and uh, go try something else. But again, it it in some ways it is like a business. It's a little bit like I talked earlier about um, people in the uh, construction trade starting their own business. You know, in some ways, being in a band was a bit like that. You know, you're you're out there, you're making your own job. Uh, the band is kind of like the company. Um, you just have really unreliable employees. That's all. But uh, um, with strange ideas. But uh, but it was it was uh, I think good experience in in uh, knowing that you. I mean, the stuff just didn't happen either. You had to go and push and make it happen. And uh, and if you did, then you could go and do this, and you could have some fun and make some money. And you mentioned there that you know it really was like running a business. And so I'm sure that a lot of those sort of qualities came into when you did start your own business and you mentioned it was a software company. Do you want to tell us a little bit about more about starting the business? What was it that really was that first urge to, you know, become an entrepreneur and really, and really start that up? Well, instead of would I, when I left Pitney Bowes for the second time, I, uh, um, I had thought through then that, you know, there's, there's probably something I can do. And, uh, um, and I thought, if I don't, if I don't try this now, when will I try it? You know, like if if I think if I think I'm as good as I think I am, which you get from sort of rising through the ranks. I guess you think, oh, well, this is good. You know, I got this job, I got this promotion, I got another promotion, I got another promotion. I think, well, what if I, you know, am I just dependent on making somebody else money, or can I make some money for myself by doing this? So. Um, I was really kind of at a, uh, at a crossroads, um, probably in my late thirties, I guess. And I think, well, what am I going to do here? Am I going to go back into a different kind of job? I could have likely stayed at Penny Bowes. I know I, I was sort of precipitated. Some of this was, uh, I had been offered a job in the U S. Um, that was sort of a non-starter and, uh, but you reach a point where, you know, um, either keep going or you go one of the two so um anyway that that all kind of fell apart and i thought well do i want to just get back into another job like this you know and carry on with that sort of a, a career uh or do i want to try something on my own so that's where i thought well uh i think i know what it takes to do that and uh um, so I, I, I gave myself a year, but I, well, I had enough money to, to last for a year and, uh, uh, I'll see how it goes. And if it doesn't work, I'll just go get a, another job at some place and, uh, and carry on with, with that sort of corporate career, I guess is how you put it. So, so I left the corporate world behind and, uh, and started, uh, Lance to Karen Associates, uh, didn't have any associates, but um, uh, at least not at the beginning. Um, but I did get plugged into um, a whole network of other people that were doing similar kinds of things. <clears throat> so you were able to trade off uh, different jobs and whatnot. And I picked up uh, a few customers almost out of the gate, people that I had no other, um, uh, they weren't sort of contacts from my Pitney Bowes days or anything. Uh, 
or new new customers. Uh, you know, you, you do some work for some one person, you do some work for another person, and they tell somebody else, or they look somebody else is looking for something, and just sort of word of mouth spreads. And at the time, you know, the, the whole computer industry moving into offices was pretty new. And, uh, you know, making one computer talk to another computer was black magic. And um, getting it to talk to a printer was crazy talk. So um, being able to do that kind of stuff um, got, got me started. Um, I got hooked up with some wholesalers and uh, people would be looking for new equipment all the time because, you know, whatever you had was obsolete and uh, obsolescence was just running amok. And uh, so I would do, uh, do quotes and you could, at the time I started, you could make about 25 points on a, a hardware sales. So you make 25%, which was, you know, pretty decent for something you didn't have to uh, you would charge for actually setting it up as well. So, you know, the whole thing was um, pretty lucrative and the more you could do, the more you could do. But um, over the next couple of years, I guess, of doing that and the margins started to get squeezed, squeezed and squeezed. And I know I did uh, finally sort of reached that point where I said, hmm, I'd done a hardware deal for about $50,000. And I think I had, at the end of the day, I made about $3,000 and then, um, one of the laser printers or something that we put in quit and I ended up having to replace that and I had to pay for that out of my own pocket before I got the money back and I thought this is crazy I'm doing all this work and not really not really making any money and the other thing too is that um, as it, the margins got uh, squeezed there were more and more people in that business so you would get more and more requests to do quotes and quotes were really hard to do because they would be all individual and you have to add the components. It wasn't, you know, now you just go to the Apple site or something and say, give me one of those, one of those. But this was all I want, this kind of memory card and I want this kind of this and that and you'd have to put it all together. Um, so it was a lot of work and you were doing lots of those and not getting the deals. And I thought, hmm, this is not, uh, this is not sustainable on a go forward basis. I'm not, uh, uh, I told it many people i'm not smart enough to run a company on three percent margin so it just i admire people who can but uh, you have to do such huge volumes and I, I really wasn't interested in that kind of stuff through then though i'd been exposed to more and more people with uh, essentially database problems database issues or they needed the database to do something and <clears throat> i got started with uh, people who had paid somebody to do databases and it was just a mess <laughs> They were a mess. Whoever did it didn't have any idea. And I'm not, uh, I'm the first person to announce that I am not a programmer, but, um, but I knew enough about programming that this was not how you did it. And um, so I was able to fix up some of that stuff. And um, so you, and then we would write some basic, basic stuff for, um, I know we did one for a, one of the big malls in Toronto to, uh, to track their um, security people and uh, the number of, problems they had with different stores and whatnot. So it's just really a, a list and then to be able to search it and sort it and stuff like that. It was all really, really basic stuff, but really made a huge difference in what they were they were doing. So started to do more and more and more database stuff. Um, so I actually ended up hiring a couple of real programmers and uh, we know what they were doing and uh, we do uh, custom database work. And uh, Somewhere in there, I moved out of my basement into a, um, 
first few jobs we did was where I'd hire people. We would actually work out of my basement, but that was not tenable. And um, so one of the big, big, big jumps in, in running our business is renting space. <clears throat> actually, I uh, went out and rented 1,100 square feet, which naively I thought meant I got 1,100 square feet. <laughs> That's not how commercial real estate works, don't you know? That includes your share of the common areas in the hallways and everything else. So, so what I thought was going to be big enough was probably not quite big enough. But um, started doing that and uh, did more and more sort of custom database work. But custom database work is high risk stuff uh, because you give somebody a quote on something and then you actually have to go and build it. And if it doesn't work the way you thought it was gonna work or the customer is not as forthcoming or there's, there's a million issues that can crop up, it means you may lose money on this deal, you know, and, um, and you may lose significant amounts of money. So um, it, was always, uh, it, it was always high risk. And, you know, we did, did all right with it, in some deals we did really well, other deals not nearly as well as we uh, needed to. And one of our one of our customers was a bankruptcy trustee, and uh, they had this awful, awful software. And it was it was truly awful software um, that they were using, and they needed to track. Um, I know the first thing we did was they wanted to be able to track where cars were. Because if uh, you go bankrupt and the bankruptcy trustee has to seize the car because you owe money in the car or whatever, well, then the trustee is responsible for that car. So they have to know where it is and they have to know things like when does the insurance expire on it because they can't leave it uninsured. So the trustee would have to put insurance on it. So the software they had wouldn't do any of that kind of stuff. So we started with that very small sort of, that's a, that's a pretty easy thing to do. We can put together a little database for you. There you go. I said, well, that's great. Now, could you do this? Could you add on this and add on that and add on this? So after about nine months of doing add-ons to add-ons to add-ons, we still, they hadn't used this at all ever. And I finally had a meeting with them. I said, listen, our ability to, to look after this is you got, you've got to put it into, into production because you know, we're going to forget what we did nine months ago uh, if you don't or, or just, or give us an overall plan. Like, don't tell me, bits and pieces of what you want to do, tell me the whole thing because we'll design it completely differently. You know, what we've, what we've done here, you know, for tracking cars is not really applicable anymore to how you want to, uh, you know, track everything under the sun. And I said, oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And I think the reason they said, don't worry about it is because they were about to go bankrupt. <laughs> so that was, uh, I believe, that was the last time that a bankruptcy trustee had gone bankrupt in Canada. Um, what happened with them is they were specializing in students. And it used to be that um, student loans were, um, uh, bankruptcy was applicable to student loans. So um, their um, modus operandi, they were expanding like crazy and going after people graduating. And they said, listen, <clears throat> you know, you've just graduated. Um, you're about to start a job. You have no credit history, no whatever, declare bankruptcy, get rid of your thirty or $40,000 student loan, and uh, then get on with your life, you know? So it was a, a powerful enough argument. Um, and then unannounced to anybody, and apparently um, 
what happened was the finance minister uh, on his in his rough notes uh, on his way to deliver a budget um, uh, decided to move student loans from being uh, applicable to bankruptcy to making them not applicable to bankruptcy. So they now serve, if you go bankrupt, your student loans survive and you still owe the money. Um, that essentially put these guys out of business and they had expanded so, so much that uh, the whole thing just collapsed. Anyway, what we took out of there was that this software that they were uh, running was just awful. It was sort of DOS-based and it was ancient and, and it was clunky and it was awful. So I thought, well, maybe there's something we could do with that. So I sat on that for six or eight months and then the dot-com boom was booming and we were thinking, well, what can we do in the dot-com business? And um, I thought, well, maybe we could do something with this bankruptcy software. I mean, if we wrote some you know, bankruptcy.com or something that, uh, you know, we could uh, make some money doing that. So we looked at it and we said, well, the problem with doing stuff on the internet is like, how do you get paid for it? You know, like traditionally you would write software, then you would sell it to, a, in this case, a bankruptcy trustee. And that's what <clears throat> the guys that had the market at that point in time, that's what they were doing. They'd written the software a long time ago and they ran around knocking on bankruptcy trustees' doors and said, here, we've got software that you guys can use. And, uh, and sold it. So that works really well in really large markets. It doesn't work well in small markets. So you can make a lot of money for a little while, but what happens after you've got 100% of the market? And how do you maintain it? And maintenance fees, the expectation for maintenance fees then was like 10 or 15%. And uh, that would be enough money to sort of mm, just keep it going. But uh, uh, there was really no money to reinvest in the, in the products. So. Looking at that, that's a, a fundamental problem. Like, why do we want to get into such a small market if we if we can't do this? And if you do it on the internet, how would you charge for it anyway? So we hit on the idea of, uh, well, what if we charged per bankruptcy? And uh, well, that would work on the internet because then you could, you know, every time you used it for a new person going bankrupt, you could uh, charge a fee for that. Uh, well, that then would give you forever revenue from it. And I thought, oh. This might work. So we thought first, well, let's write something like this and we'll start and uh, we'll also survey a bunch of trustees and whatnot and just see what they, you know, what they think of this whole idea. And we'll sort of do it in between other jobs. That way we can sort of, you know, when we have a lull in, in work, we'll just work on this thing. So after three or four months, I realized that it would take probably 30 years to write software at that rate because uh, there wasn't enough downtime and, uh, um, and picking it up and putting it down and picking it up and putting it down wasn't an efficient way to write software either. Um, and then looking at or talking with different trustees and we actually hired a, a, a marketing company to go out and take a look at the market and say, you know, what, uh, what, what are people using? What is the level of satisfaction with the current software? Like, is, you know, we, we'd had one view into this marketplace, but that's, you know, that's not definitive. So uh, the marketing company came back and said, well, two things. He said, first off, nobody is interested in doing anything on that internet thing. It's just way too risky and too new and nobody's going to touch that. So, and these guys are all, a, in order to be a bankruptcy trustee, you have to be an accountant first. And so, you know, it's, a, and then it's a whole bunch more schooling after that. So uh, they're a relatively conservative lot. Um, so 
that came through pretty strong. And then the other thing the guy said, well, he said, we got the numbers on the satisfaction. He says, and I didn't believe them. So we went back and we surveyed a whole bunch more. And we just did that on our own dime. He says, because I didn't believe these numbers. He says, we've never measured anything with a lower satisfaction rate than this current software. He says, it's just, it's off the charts. People don't just dislike it. They hate it. They hate it with a passion. They, they would drop it in a heartbeat. So based on that, we said, well, hmm, we still like the idea of charging per file because we think that that would work and we could come up with a way to build that into software. So we'll build software and what we'll do is we'll give the software away and we'll just charge on a, on a, per, um, a per bankruptcy basis and, uh, and uh, we'll build it. So the only way to get it built was to sort of commit the company. So made the decision, put a bunch of money together. I had uh, one other customer that was going gangbusters and um, they were in a big mess and we were, um, we were building them ridiculous amounts of money every month. And uh, that looked like it would carry on for a year anyway. So I said, okay, um, and we had a bunch of, we had put a bunch of money aside and we had lined up a couple of investors and said, okay, we're going to commit the company to this, and we stopped taking any new business, and we just ran on um, ran on our reserves. And I figured it was going to take a year, so I had about a million dollars lined up. We'll go and do this. Well, the million dollars didn't last a year, and at a year we weren't halfway through. <laughs> so that when things started to get a little more um, challenging. So. Um, I know there were uh, there was more than one payday when I woke up thinking, hmm, I need thirty thousand dollars by three o'clock this afternoon. Where am I going to get that from? <laughs> and um, you know, we managed to squeak through and uh, uh, and get it. So we got to the point where the software was at least operational. And this software was um, it's uh, I refer to it as accounting. It is really specialized accounting software, but it's um, it's a whole CRM system. It tracks from the very first phone contact that someone would make to a trustee all the way through to the discharge of the bankruptcy. It does all of the legal documents at, uh, uh, and there are probably a hundred different routes that you can go through for, for bankruptcy. So it does them all in both official languages. It talks electronically to the government. It talks electronically to, um, to creditors and um, ultimately another story, but uh, it, actually talks to banks as well. And that was another uh, big deal. Uh, so it, for most of the people that were working on this, and at the time, I think we were up, we were running around 20 uh, um, software people, receptionists and that sort of thing, um, <clears throat> working on this thing essentially, uh, well, sometimes seven days a week um, to, get, to get this thing up and running. So we got it to the point where it would at least operate and uh, we were able to give it to a couple of trustees who would then sort of exercise it and um, expose vulnerabilities or problems and whatnot and things that we uh, fixed or things that uh, didn't work the way they expected or wanted it to work. Um, and another um, six months or so of that. And then uh, we had been through this whole time, we've been talking with many trustees. There's a trustee association that was helping us uh, they wanted to get rid of this other software as well. It was sort of a universal, universally held thing. So um, they were working with us. We were working with us who 
superintendent of bankruptcies. Uh, they were uh, also interested in what we were doing. And uh, um, so if we had legal questions and whatnot, or just how is this supposed to work, they would, uh, they would help us out as well. So we had a lot of um, technical support on the, uh, on the bankruptcy side. Um, and we were able to, to get it so that it, it was actually starting to work. And then our good friends at uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers um, came in one day and they, um, they took a copy away and they came back a month later and said, okay, here's all the changes you have to make. And if you do that, we'll buy it. So um, before that time, all of the demonstrations and whatnot, because we'd gone to different uh, conferences and whatnot where trustees up and it was always about show me that it works was the question like it was like having a if you had a calculator if you're selling a calculator people said well show me that it adds correctly you know push two by two two times two or something and show me that it says four at the bottom those kinds of questions after price waterhouse got through it because uh, most of most of the trustees probably started at one of the big firms uh, kpmg price waterhouse those kind of guys so they said, well, if those guys went through it, they've been through with a fine tooth comb. So I know it works. Show me how it works then. So it, it's the, the sort of um, the questions we got changed to do more about oh, how would this help? Anyway, the, um, but the little kicker we had was that uh, uh, we entered the market when, when it was ready. We, uh, we set our price at $45 uh, uh, bankruptcy uh, as the fee. The way it worked, you would buy, um, we called them licenses, but they were, uh, you buy a hundred or something like that. And uh, we give you a secret squirrel code and you put that in and then you would have a hundred and much like a postage meter, just count down every time you, every time somebody actually filed for bankruptcy, <clears throat> you would uh, uh, use up one of these licenses and when it ran down, you could still process the ones you have, but you couldn't put any new ones in until you got a new code and send us some more money. So, um, so we had a competitor with 98% of the market and our product was four times the price. <laughs> and, uh, um, I know I, I sat with my, um, my own personal investment uh, guy and he says, uh, well, he told me I was nuts. Well, he wasn't nearly as polite. He said, you're crazy, that'll never work. And um, we had a couple of bankruptcy trustees. They were all enthused until they got to the price. And I said, no one will ever buy it for that price. And, uh, but I knew that they would because I knew that we could save them probably four or $500 in process for each file. Like I just knew that we we could, we had automated so much stuff that they were currently paying people to do. I tell people, yeah, you can pay, you can pay your clerk, you can pay me. I don't care, you're gonna pay the clerk more, but you know, it's like, we'll carry on. So sales went along, they went, pretty well um and then i guess in 2006 7 i really started to <clears throat> to build we started to build uh, um, more and more clients in fact we were running like three crews just doing installs because the installs were a pretty big deal because we had to convert all the existing files from this old crappy software that was full of bugs and uh things that would corrupt data and people could use it wrong and it would be it would let them so you know what one company had for data in one place another company would have completely different data in that same place so it made uh, converting much more challenging but at three or four crews doing that we had um you know 
the price monitor house would be 30 or 40 offices, um, BDO, Dunglody, KPMG, um, all of these guys uh, uh, started converting and lots and lots of small players. Uh, and things were going along pretty well. And then um, they got a call, the, uh, the existing competitor wanted to sell. And uh, at that time, we actually had a third competitor that had shown up, which I, uh, it still amazes me to this day. It amazes me what these guys were thinking, like why you would enter such a small market uh, with two competitors. Like I, we, we hummed and hawed about entering it. We would be the only competitor. But uh, anyway, they, they served to be a distraction, but I, um, I didn't want them to, uh, to buy these guys either. So that's what we needed to, uh, to like they wanted a million dollars for that. And I don't think we paid them quite that much, but we paid them a bunch of money. Um, so finding that money, because I, I wasn't just sitting on that money, um, uh, that's when we got into more um, corporate investors, I guess. And that's when the, um, they had a call. I had gotten calls early on from some of the publishing houses, um, uh, McGraw-Hill and uh, um, Die in Durham, I guess. Uh, those kind of guys that were interested in buying the software because it would fit into their business model and because they were already selling a lot of stuff to, uh, to uh, bankruptcy trustees. But then I got a call from an insurance company. Um, I heard we were looking for a million dollars. They happen to have a million dollars. Um, and they're also looking to buy a software company. So uh, anyway, we ended up doing a, a phased deal with them where they would uh, buy a third of the company and then another third of the company and then a final third of the company. And so it was, uh, uh, it was uh, a decision uh, at the time. It was sort of based on, well, this is the right thing to do for the company. And, uh, uh, and you know, there'd been an awful lot of stress, you know, it, it's hard to underestimate the amount of stress you go through um, when you're sort of undercapitalized and, uh, and trying to run something that has really big numbers, at least in my world, uh, you know, uh, 30, 40,000, sometimes $50,000 um, uh, every two weeks for payroll is, is a lot of money. And then the government uh, started wanting, I know we were sending the government $40,000 a month or something like that for whatever, <clears throat> HST and, uh, and all backs and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, um, dealing with that and trying to make sure it, uh, it all comes together was, uh, it was a pretty stressful time. So uh, somebody coming along with really deep pockets and uh, what seemed to be a pretty good deal at the time, and it actually turned out to be a good deal, but uh, uh, circumstances sort of, uh, played into making it uh, tougher. The, um, I noticed in, I guess, early 2008, late 2007, 2008, our business started to pick up. Like more than just, you know, like we were growing and growing and growing, but all of a sudden it started to grow a lot. And I thought, oh, that's weird. <laughs> And then the end of uh, 2008, of course, the, um, the stock market collapsed, everything went to hell in a handbasket, and our business exploded. It just went off the charts. Um, uh, we, whoever was left to convert, wanted to be converted right away, 
Um, people were going bankrupt left, right, and center. Um, and it was, uh, uh, we were, we were hiring people. We were, um, you know, we were in the, uh, to say we were counter cyclical would be an understatement. Um, you know, the worse the economy got, the better our business got. Um, the problem that caused was that uh, this insurance company was hit really hard by 2008. And uh, they were paying us a multiple of, of sort of net income. <laughs> so they had budgeted a bunch of money and that wasn't nearly enough money anymore. And so um, anyway, it, uh, our relationships went somewhat downhill. They, they tried to rewrite the deal and we ended up in litigation and more stress. Anyway, um, fast forward a year or so and uh, we finally um, on the courthouse steps came to an agreement and uh, uh, everybody went away. I, um, they did ask me, they were gonna re, uh, at that point in time, they're gonna take the whole, they owned 100% all set to leave and they asked me if I would stay. And uh, I said, well, no. And uh, so then they asked me again. And they said, well, what would it take for you to stay? So I, I called a lawyer that I knew and I said, well, here's what they told me. He says, okay, leave it with me. <laughs> so he wrote up a deal. I said, yep, yeah, that looks good. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. So um, anyway, they took it. So I ended up working them for, uh, well, they paid me for a year, I think, but I only had to work for them for three months. And uh, uh, they did finally get somebody that could uh, take over running the company on a, on a day by day basis. Uh, so that was, um, again, that was a little easier then because, if, you know, although you can't stop worrying about it because it's something that you built from literally from an idea to, uh, uh, to fruition. And it was, it was going really well when when I left, and uh, so it, it was it was very satisfying from that perspective. It was a bit sad to leave, you know. If um, uh, if I'd been better capitalized at the beginning, I'd probably still own it, um, and we could move that whole thing up to Muskoka. Um, one of the last big arguments I had with the, uh, this insurance company is I was going to move everything from downtown Toronto out to Markham, and uh, they thought that was crazy talk. Um, but in, in retrospect, I mean, you know, we, as long as we had good internet, um, and I don't know whether at the time we could have moved to, to uh, Muskoka, but uh, everything that we did was, um, was internet-based. Um, all of the support, all of everything was pretty much internet-based. And uh, today that company could run out of uh, Gravenhurst with not a problem. And it would be way easier to attract the really good people that you need. And I think that's one of the things now, um, it's, it's hard to attract and keep good people and uh, at, at the best of times. And especially in a, in a business where um, there are entire companies whose reason for being a business is to steal your employees and give them to somebody else. In fact, it's worthwhile for you to hire the really good ones not because you need anybody, but because then they'll agree not to poach any of your employees. So we actually paid three or four of them. It's almost like protection money. <laughs> um, and I think that's where the uh, sort of lifestyle things come. But uh, you know, if if I had uh, 
retained ownership of the company, uh, I could see having it uh, running out of anywhere up here. And, uh, you know, we were paying at the time, you know, well in excess of six figures for uh, um, top, well, not even top programmers, but, uh, you know, they get to really, really good people. You got to pay them, uh, you got to pay them big money. And uh, um, it's, uh, to give them the opportunity to come someplace like this, not all of them would want to do it, but there'd be a lot of them that do just get rid of the, you know, I think through the pandemic, uh, getting rid of the commute is, uh, is worth its weight in gold. And that's, uh, that's something you can offer uh, an employee. That's, uh, that's really something. I think it's, um, it's a different thing if you're, if you're trying to attract um, sort of high end, uh, high skill set people where, you know, they can buy a house up here. They they have the financial wherewithal, I guess. They probably own a house in Toronto. So it's uh, it's actually uh, uh, makes good economic sense to come up here as opposed to um, if you're hiring at the uh, lower salary levels, it's there's there's huge barriers uh, in housing and whatnot uh, here. But there is everywhere. But that's, I guess, briefly how, um, how that went. <laughs>